Let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. And we'll consider the first 18 verses of chapter 18 of Matthew. But I want also to read from the Gospel according to Luke, a parallel passage. Just one this evening, though there is another parallel passage in in, in Luke. Excuse me. We'll read from Mark, but there's another parallel passage in Luke. You can read that at your leisure. Mark 9 is what we want to consider, verse 33. Well, let's go back to 30. 30, Mark 9. The word of God. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And that's as far as we'll read in Mark. Let's go back to Matthew 18 and the first 14 verses have a fuller explanation of what Jesus was teaching here about the question that they were asking, the disciples were asking among themselves about the nature of the citizens of the kingdom and what is there to be their activity and their delight with regard to little children. Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lamed, lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? 
And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's as far as we'll read in Matthew 18. And that passage buttressed by the parallel count in Mark as well as Luke chapter 9. What is striking here in the context, beloved, is that Jesus is, or has just uh, finished speaking of his demise, of his abasement as he goes to Jerusalem and will be tried and then crucified and killed and buried and the third day rise again. It's at this time that he has begun speaking in earnest about his suffering and death and articulating just how that would occur, that the apostles begin to speak of their own advancement. So Jesus has spoken of his abasement, of his demise, and they're concerned about their rank and their position in the kingdom of heaven. Luke 9 brings this out, whereas we might not know what prompted the question of the disciples of Jesus in Matthew who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Mark tells us that they were wondering who would be the greatest in the kingdom and disputing among themselves, and such was their motive that they were quiet about it because they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They were ashamed. They were ashamed. And so quickly Jesus had led them to himself and quickly the disciples begin to think about themselves and what was in it for them. Jesus asked them what they had been talking about, and it's striking he wasn't there when they were disputing, but he asked them what they were talking about because he knew, and he would elicit from them the question he and his omniscience didn't have to have them tell him, but they had to tell him. They had been quarreling about this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's striking this isn't the first time that these disciples, followers of Jesus, mind you, would, uh, or this isn't the only time that they would argue about this. Later on, Salome, the mother of James and John, asks Jesus which position James Maybe Jimmy, maybe Johnny, her boys, could have at the right hand of of God and, and of Jesus in heaven. And so they're all in on this, the disciples and maybe their their mothers too as well, and their fathers, if they were still alive. A burning question. Wasn't a question of what kind of kingdom Jesus would establish. They were not really aware of that either. But the question was, how can we share in this kingdom that you're about to establish. establish. And what follows at this time, in the light of this alarming question, which is indeed alarming, is perhaps some of Jesus' greatest instruction on Christian ethics, how to behave towards one another, and how also to enter even into the kingdom. So Jesus sets a little child in the midst. This child will be like a parable. And they will be taught from the child itself 
and he will give this surprising answer to their question and turn their question on its head and turn them in shame to repent and to be converted and to become like that little child. So it's a very humbling answer that Jesus gives, and I trust, beloved, that we also will be humbled as we consider that question, who is the greatest, a question, I fear, that always is somehow on the tip of our tongues and in our hearts to ask, how can we be the greatest in the kingdom? And certainly, we're greater than that one, or we're greater than that one, and we have something to say for ourselves. Well, let's consider the little child gospel answer. For it's not just about a little child, a little child who are angels, but it's about a little child, excuse me, gospel answer. And then for what I would call childology on the ground. And I want to link here not only the, uh, I want to link the first part of Matthew 18 with a couple of the other instructions that Jesus gives here. I think they're all to be taken together. Even really the last part is, but we don't have time to deal with that all. But there are implications here of the little child gospel answer to the question, who is the greatest? It has to do with our living in the light of that answer, who is the greatest? And then this is for affirmations and good questions of those who are converted. So, beloved, what's the answer? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? That was pressing. That was burning. That was burning on the hearts and the minds of the disciples, and they were bickering. It's striking that they would ask this question. Maybe not so striking, because things that happened that seemed to indicate that maybe there were some who were favorites in the kingdom. Remember, there were were only three who went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. We read of that in Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John. Who's the greatest? And Peter is the one who who had indicated that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe he's the greatest, but others might have been arguing, yes, but Jesus called him a devil when he he denied that Jesus had to suffer or that it was is becoming of him. Maybe others were saying that John would be the greatest. Maybe John himself, though it's hardly hard to imagine, because John is the one who's described in the, the Bible as the disciple Jesus loved. Maybe Judas himself was saying that he was the greatest because, after all, he had the money bag. He was trusted with that money bag and somehow to take collections for the cause of the disciples. Maybe Andrew, he was the first who was called. Maybe the sons of bow and heirs, the sons of thunder, for their brashness and whatever else they were known for. Jesus doesn't acknowledge anything of anyone here. Instead, he takes a little child and will say something about that little child and about being childlike. I do want to say that it is remarkable here that Peter is not said to be the greatest. You would think that if the Pope was right and Roman Catholic theology was right, here was the time for Jesus to say, well, Peter is the greatest. He's the rock on which I'll build my church, but he doesn't. Exactly because Peter's not the greatest. And there's no 
great one among men that we're to think of here. Rather, a little child. Jesus takes a little child. Jesus called a little child a paideos, someone who is being educated. Covenant schooled, whatever else schools they had or home schools, calls a little child to Jesus, uh, to himself, and sets him in the midst of them. An object lesson. I find it striking that little children seem to be all around Jesus, just about all the time, maybe, unless they went away for a while and to be with the adults. But the children were gathered to Jesus, attracted to Jesus. He welcomed the little children. He told the disciples to suffer the little children to be brought to him and to be blessed by him. We acknowledge something of Jesus' love of little children when we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus now has a lesson to teach through this little child. It even says that for all the disciples thought they were greatest, they would, there would be among them one at least, or maybe 10 out of the 11 or 11 out of the 12 would be greatest in the kingdom. He says, surely I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying that we're to be like a little child. Now, he's not saying, of course, that we're to be like a little child who's foolish or playful or cute, just like that, that a little child is that we know them to be. He is, however, saying that whatever society is thinking of little children, and basically they thought they weren't important, I beg to disagree, he was saying. I declare I dis disagree. I declare the word of the Father in heaven, and on behalf of the word of the, of, of the Father in heaven, there's something about children that's very important indeed. They might not have no rights or no say. They're better, they might better be seen and not heard. But I say to you, you've got to be like them. Like them and converted into who they are in their very nature. Not something even that they do, but something a little child is in their own little childishness, in their being a child. There's something about a child, like dependent, utterly dependent. Their nature is that they are utterly dependent, and they know it. And they don't seem to have any problem about it until they get a little older. But when they're little children, such an age, before they've hardly been able to walk and so on, or just after that, they're so reliant, aren't they? They need mom and dad. They need grandmas and grandpas and others in their life who are the adults. They need a leg and any leg in a crowd will do. Isn't that striking? They'll come up to you and grab your leg because the leg is taller than they are, more stable than they are, wobbling on their feet and lost in the sea of legs. They're reliant. 
They're utterly reliant just because of who they are, and they cry out for help, and even if they don't know what they need, they know they need whatever it is. We might know their their needs, and there's basically three or so, one of which is food. But they're also loving, and they presume upon the love of mom and dad, the care, the caring love of mom and dad. That's, that's always remarkable to me. It doesn't matter how busy you are. They come, and they're going to jump in your lap, or they're going to express their need. They're going to cry, and they're, they're going to cry out and howl sometimes. They'll come in the middle of the night. doesn't matter that mom and dad are sleeping. They know that they're going to be heard. I hope you hear them. And it's because you love them. They're, they're banking on the love. They're trusting in the love that you have for them. You're going to respond to them in their utter needs because nobody else can help them. They're sure. So those two things, utterly dependent and relying on the love of mom and dad, and we could say also there's, there's no show about them. They're all... Here, what you see is what you get. They just show who they are. They're not embarrassed. We're embarrassed sometimes. Uh, how they walk around with, in their diapers and so on. But there's no deceit. There's no malice until, of course, the next child comes along and they show how selfish they are and depraved by nature. But in their childlikeness, in their being, they're not good at fooling mom and dad. They're not the practiced deceivers that we are. We can read right through their little lies and so on. They're so open. In a word, really the virtue that Jesus is extolling here that's to be seen in a child is their humility. They're lowly. They're very humble. They're not of any account in in the world except to be cared for and recede with gladness, even though they're a lot of work, they're a lot of money, they got a long way to go before they can be on their own and stand on their own two feet, as it were. So Jesus says, you got to become like a little child, and that person who becomes like a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who become like little children, he expands it to little ones. And now, There's this mixing of the child, literally, in front of them, and the spiritual children that Jesus is saying we need to be like. All followers of Jesus, in other words, even to enter the kingdom, let alone be great, must be as this little child. They must be humble, not proud. There must be no pretense, no show, no deceit, but true humility with all of its fruits, with God-dependence, God-reliance, loving God, coming to Him for all their needs. In fact, Jesus says it's so necessary to be as a little child that you have to be converted and become as little children. 
Now, that's the word here for being turned to God, really. And it's used sometimes in that narrow sense of being regenerated, and in the broader sense, as our catechism reminds us, of being turned to God again and again daily, with the daily mortification of the old man and the putting on of the new man. Death to sin, life to life with God. This is what is indispensable if one is to be even in and to enter into the kingdom. And of course, Jesus is not stressing this here. He's stressing the nature of the conversion and not just how, but we know how. By the grace of God alone, one is born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God or enter into the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit comes in. And you cannot be converted uh, also except by God. But there is a difference between the first work of conversion or regeneration and after works, that is daily works of conversion, when we're daily humbled. And then the daily works and of the regenerated child of God, one who's already a child of God, There's this working of God in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But even that is not of ourselves. We pray with Jeremiah, turn thou us and we shall be turned after all. It's all of grace and all of grace and all of sovereign grace. Or grace is not grace. There's no merit. And you think of the irony of those who would say, well, there's something you have to do on your own to merit heaven And they would find the grist for their Arminian mill right here where Jesus is saying you have to be as a little child who obviously has nothing to gain or nothing that he can offer to God. He has all his needs provided by God. So in the object lesson of becoming as a little child, we learn grace, sheer grace in all of the works of salvation, in all of the works of being in the kingdom and in the work of God, humbling us and so that we humble ourselves as this little child to be among the number in heaven. Now, that's one lesson. But there's another lesson. And I was asking someone of you this morning this question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And the answer came from the mouth of a child of God himself. I asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? He said, well, Jesus. And I thought, you got it. Jesus is the greatest. And this really is the whole lesson here. The disciples are asking among themselves, disputing and arguing, is it Peter, is it James, is it John, is it Andrew, is it the sons of Boanerges, and is it Judas, and so on. And they're missing the point of Jesus, whom they're following. Jesus, who has just said, I must go to the death in Jerusalem and be cast outside the camp and I will rise again the third day and I will establish this kingdom that way. And now they're just in it for the goods and not for the worship of this child of God. 
See, Jesus presents to them a little child. And we could maybe, maybe leave off there and maybe preachers do that sometimes and just be as a little child and, and just be childlike and not childish, childlike and have faith. And that's, that's true what he's saying here. But the gospel of the little child lesson here is that there's another child, even the Son of God. And this other child, the Son of God, is even called that holy child after he's ascended into heaven. He's still a child of God, the Son of the Father. And his coming down to the earth is the greatest act of humiliation. You see, Jesus teaches by object lesson here. Later on in the New Testament, Philippians, for example, will be a doctrinal lesson by those who have the Spirit and who have that Word of God printed, having been inspired through the, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul. A lesson of Jesus becoming as a little obedient child, the Lord of the universe becoming a servant, taking on him the form of a servant, becoming a man and, and going the way of the cross and obedient to God in all things and going the way of that death of deaths, that bearing of sin and being cast out of the fellowship of his Father and crying in the dark of the night of Calvary and Good Friday as we call it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That little child, that great child, that great son of God, he's the greatest. Enough of all this talk then, all this other talk about which of us is the greatest. It's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Not to the point. Distracting. A bunch of pride. And nonsense. Jesus speaks something of this when he says in verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. See, he's identifying himself with the children. Himself being the child of, of the children, the, the savior child of the, the children. And by that, there's, of course, this understanding that we have, knowing the rest of the Bible in the New Testament, there's this character of a child, the weak and the lowly and the sinful and the dependent, the covenant seed of Abraham, the true children of God are all meant by this little child. And Jesus is saying, I am represented in them so that if you receive them, you're receiving me. And that's the greatest thing. You want to call yourself great in the kingdom of heaven? Fine. As you identify with me, as my greatness, as it were, rubs off on you, if that is even legitimate to say that, as you participate in my salvation, in my honor, those are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has this in mind. And in a word, beloved, I think it's all about grace. Don't you? You could have another word for it. When Jesus is talking about little children, who's the greatest in the kingdom, and 
It's all about eyes on Jesus. He's telling the disciples with a a mild rebuke of a lesson. There's no scolding here, but instruction. Remember grace. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Do we remember that? By the grace of God, we are what we are. Whenever we're talking about comparing ourselves, comparing our churches, comparing the pastor with another pastor, and and all of this, it's all this meology, not theology, meology, carnality, not Christology, praising Christ, and certainly not childology, to which I would turn you in my second point. Jesus links this basic instruction of becoming as a little child and being converted to certain lessons he would teach that show whether or not we are as a little child, and we really get it. We really get the importance of children and those who are childlike disciples and those who know Jesus. In fact, he gives a warning in verses 6 and 7. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, now it would be a little child, first of all, but I believe you can expand this to anyone who is a disciple. Whoever causes one of these disciples who believe in me, see, there it is, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for often offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Oh, Jesus is warning here, warning against giving offense to the little children and to the disciples, saying, yes, offenses must come. We live in this fallen world, but there's responsibility. There's an inevitability, yes, of sin and evil and in this society, but woe to those who are responsible for the sin and causing others to sin. How terrible that is. He likens it to the death that seemingly the Jews feared almost the most, death by drowning. They would not execute criminals by drowning. They might hang them on a tree. They might stone them. That's gruesome enough, but not by drowning. The sea to them was a sea of nations, and they feared this, and this was despicable and and very uh, beneath them. But drowning it will be. Hell it will be to those who give offense, especially to the little ones and to the disciples of Christ. It is those who cause them to sin. will be like this millstone, and here the reference is to what literally is called the donkey stone. Children in those days, private homes and other, also homes in the community or, or places of business in the community would have their own mill. There'd be a stone on the maybe on the flat place in the bottom and a bigger stone on top. And you could turn these, the top stone around and there's a little hole in the top stone. And you pour the grain down that and it would cause the grain then to be squeezed between the stones as it was being turned around. But this donkey stone was a larger stone, maybe three, four hundred pounds. And a donkey would walk around the mill stones, this top stone on top of the bottom stone, 
And Jesus is saying, that's this heavy stone here. And you're going to have that thrown or tied around you and you and the stone thrown into the sea. And surely enough, you're going to sink. You're going to perish. You're going to go to the bottom. It's better for you that you were never born, as it were, or, or that you had never caused one to sin. It'd be better for you if a millstone were hanging around your neck. He's talking about hell here. Hell. Then, well, let me just talk about that a little bit. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, just some thoughts about being a stumbling block for people. You know, we can do that, and it's not just by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with children. It could be, I don't want to have anything to do with disciples who are acting acting like disciples. Could be in schools, even Christian schools, that there's cliques that are formed, and the ones who are trying to be good and trying to obey the teacher and their mom and dads are doing that, but they're being mocked and laughed at and shunned by those who say, you guys think you're, holy, you're, you're holier than we are, and so on. So right within the covenant community, you can give offense to the little ones who say, what's the use of trying to be holy? I'm not going to be happy. And I'm going to be cast out and so on out of the crowd. Maybe those of you who've been homeschooled mostly don't understand this, but this peer pressure is a real problem. But there's also all kinds of ways that we who think we have arrived can be those who give offense, let's say simply by not praying for the cause of the kingdom, not praying for one another in the congregation, being inconsistent in our lives, maybe as parents doing one thing, saying another, saying one thing, doing another, and all messed up so that the children, the little ones that we're raising, we're supposed to raise, are given mixed messages. I know as a parent, this is the thing that is shameful to me when I see how far short I've fallen as a dad, as a husband, in all of these ways, we can be those who stumble or cause to stumble little ones. But then Jesus goes on to say this, and I think it's linked together. He speaks now of personal holiness. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And I think, beloved, though this has been brought up, Matthew 5, as the extreme of repentance to which we're to go in general... But here in this context, this has to do with dealing with the little children and ourselves being little children converted and loving the church of Christ. It has to do, if we truly are concerned about this, if this is our Christian ethic, and we are concerned about our own persons being holy. Do you realize, beloved, how much we all are affected when you go the way of your body parts and not the way of the soul led by Jesus, 
Do you realize how much when in secret you turn on the tube you, or the internet or whatever and you think that it's not affecting us, you realize how much that does affect us? This is what Jesus is tying in here. It's all about the children and conversion and being the greatest in the kingdom and following the holy child Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Will there be personal holiness? In this congregation, ruthless it is. Jesus, he says, no, you don't want to have any truck with sin. Not one thing your hand does or your foot does that causes you to sin. Don't blame the world for leading you into the house of ill repute. Your feet took you there. Don't blame the others or whatever. Your hand turned on the knob. Don't blame somebody else who dressed down and almost exposed their flesh in front of you. Blame your eyes, he says. And if you have a problem with those things, cut them off, pluck them out. No, of course. Jesus is not calling for flagellations and beatings and surgeries upon ourselves. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, that wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. You know, there's people who have tried that, tried, I suppose, even this radically, to, to keep themselves from sin. They've left this world and lived in a cave, maybe. But it never helps. That's a physical thing. That is an extreme thing to be sure, but it doesn't work unless there's something in the soul that's worked. You see, it doesn't go far enough, even though it seems like it's going very far. There must be this heart change, this heart conversion. Well, all of this, again, is to say, what do you think of the little children? What do you think of being in the kingdom? And what do you think of Jesus? You see, you can't be thinking straight and you can't be consistent with your confession, Christian, if you are those who are causing little ones to sin and yourselves privately sinning so that you can be a better tempter of the children. And a worse member of the outward body of Christ. Put away all this stuff, he says. There's no place for sin in the kingdom. He's calling for a radical ethic here. Relationships with one another and and greater or lesser, whatever, it all starts by your saying, I'm nothing in this world except I have my Jesus and I want to be holy to give him glory. Then, You're going to think twice before you offend the little ones, but you're going to help the little ones. You're going to help the church. You helped the church lately, prayed for a brother, sister, those who aim to be like Christ, but who are very weak, maybe not much, maybe don't say much. What about us? You see here, 
Jesus, by these threats and these two uh, instances here where he speaks of giving offense to others and ourselves, being offended by our own selves, our hand, our feet, our eyes, is Jesus saying, what do you think of me? What do you think of me? And receiving, when you receive little children, receiving me. And pleasing yourself or pleasing me. Well, beloved, what Jesus teaches here is that we ought to be as little children with regard to these things, with regard to our relation to other children, with regard to our relation to ourself and our own body. You at home in your body, as we grow up, it's, you got to get used to your body and the motions of the flesh within that can influence your body to do bad things. Naughty things and bad things, and then get into habits with our eyes. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, big eyes, what you see. Hands, all our body parts, they're these things that become agents of sin and destruction. And then looking at others, we, we just have, dis- we have contempt in our eyes for them and in our minds for them. It's all about thinking maybe we're the greatest in the kingdom. They're certainly not, but I might be. But just do one thing more, one thing more. Jesus says, no, that's not it. And he would woe us back on track. He would woe us. Woe to those by whom offenses come. Woe to him who goes into heaven or into hell. And he has both eyes, but he's in hell after all. Woe, woe, woe. Then he instructs positively. When he says we are to take heed not to despise one of the little ones and reminds us that they have guardian angels. Isn't that interesting? Here's the text that everybody uses to say that there's guardian angels. Take heed, you despise not one of these little ones, verse 10. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Well, beloved, don't want to uh, try to promote a doctrine of guardian angels, which I don't think is here as if there's an angel for each little child or maybe a host of them for each child by name. Uh, Simply here, I think, is taught the fact that angels do watch over children and they watch over the Church of Christ in general. So we are to not despise the children because angels in heaven who are holy angels, they, they, they do the will of the Father. They're ministering spirits They're there, so you should be there, not despising the children, but caring for them. Kind of angelic Christian ministers and servants for the little children and for the disciples, the meek and the lowly. You should do that. The Father himself is the one who commissions them to care for the children, and he also commissions a son, his son, the Son of Man, who's come to seek and to save what was lost, verse 11. So you should. Not just don't offend them, 
but love them and delight in them. Delight in the people of God. And then even if they're lost and there's 99 who are there in the church, but one's gone lost. This is the parable in verses 12 through 14. If a man has 100 sheep, what do you think? One of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it's not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And here again, positively, beloved, is, is being shaped by the Lord Jesus, our appreciation of the little people of God whoever they are, however old they are. Our appreciation of them because we appreciate that that's the kind of people that Jesus loves and the Father loves and the Holy Spirit indwells. Not the high and the mighty of the earth, but the little people of God who are nothing in themselves and who are made to know that they're nothing in themselves, just like a little child. who grabs on to the big leg of God and cries to God in the night, whom they think might be sleeping but never is. And the Father in heaven hears. One sheep, one little sheep, one straying sheep. God cares for them all. So should we. Much more could be said about this, but let me leave you with some affirmations and questions. To the, to the question, or yeah, to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Do we now have what we're going to say? Jesus is. I hope that was on your lips. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. That's the answer. When Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom, we're going to say this. We're going to use the means of grace that he's given. We're going to preach that. We're going to hear that. We're going to hear not just about the greatness of the kingdom or the manifestation of it, that we are and how great a church we are or our federation is, but we're going to hear about Jesus, that he's the greatest. We're not going to be comparing ourselves to the mega church down the street or the littler church across the, the pond. Because we have a mega Jesus. We have a son of God. That son of God. The great child of the Father, our Savior. It's all about him. We're going to be concerned, therefore, not to offend one of his little ones and ourselves to be offensive in private holiness, and in that private holiness, will be, which will be the basis for our ethic or how we deal with one another, we're going to be very punctilious. Beloved, I pray, and I hope you pray, as a, as a result of this day of sermons, for example, you will be more punctilious, meaning more detailed and introspective with regard to your own personal holiness and how you deal with God and his demands and also how you deal with people. Before you speak about them, before you do anything, before your desires just happen to sweep you along, 
Be thoughtful. What do you think, Jesus says? What do you think? And ultimately, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think? There's a striking application as well to this, and we affirm it. This is true. When Jesus here putting, is putting like a, a, a firewall of protection about, against the little ones or around the little ones, whoever, whoever causes one of these to sin, beware. And you better cut off your, your hands and your feet and your t- pluck out your eyes if you dare, thinking of sinning. What he's doing there is he's protecting the little ones. He's protecting the church of God. He's warning us off pronouncing woes upon anyone who dares to hurt his ap- the apple of his eye. So in application, we ourselves, who are the little ones by the grace of God, can know the comforting wall of protection that Jesus has. Oh yes, people are causing and wanting you to sin all the time, but remember this, God loves you, and God loves you when you go astray to bring you back He will bring you back, and then you will come back, and you will be glad in the Father's arms, and he himself celebrating, and you yourself celebrating with the reconciliation and peace of God. But there's questions. I can think of just a couple. There still are questions. It's not who's the greatest. The first one that comes to my mind is, why me? Why me? Why has God made me a little child of his? Why? Why did he show grace to me? And then something we'll be wondering for all eternity. How great is this love? How great is this goodness kept in store for all who love God? And adore. How great, how great will heaven be? The Father and all the little children, the elect of his wonderful grace. Amen. Lord, we pray your blessing. Help us to come away with gladness in our hearts because you've made us your children. And like little children, You made us who are so independent and so self-asserting humble and meek. And blessed are the meek, you've said, and we are. Thanks, Lord, for the word of God and for the communion we could have. Thanks for our church. Thanks for the ministry of preaching and catechism and Bible study and the ministry of the elders, so faithful and humble, diligent for the ministry of us all as we pray, as we give our all to the cause of Christ, the cause of the little ones, and even seek and go after just one who's lost, that we might, Lord, know that wonderful, reconciling grace and blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.